Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO Show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got Jeremy Foster with me. And Jeremy is talking to me all the way from Austin, Texas, where he's CFO of a company called Tauru. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Excited to visit today. Jeremy, tell me a little bit about yourself. I know we've been doing a series about routes to CFO, and you're one of those more unusual people that isn't coming from an accountancy background. Yeah, my background's a little different. I actually started as marketing director for a $500 million community bank in New Mexico and West Texas, and then ended up leading marketing, retail banking operations for them. And then that was in 2002 and didn't really make my transition to CFO until 2012 when I was at a company called Casasa. And Casasa was a financial technology company. And I really ended up with that opportunity in the middle of completing my MBA. And it was a fortuitous move. I've enjoyed being a CFO, but my background's certainly not traditional. So certainly with, a, with an MBA from Notre Dame, you've got another marketing background, you've got loads of business skills. But as a CFO, do you feel that you missed out by not having the accounting background? Not at all. Although I'll say that's in part because I've typically been able to stay at companies where I've had a team that can support me. And so a key part of that is that in general, I have a strong controller who brings those accounting skills to bear. Yeah. I guess that not having those skills yourself very much stops you interfering in their job. I understand the issues well enough to be a nuisance from time to time, but in general, as long as closes are going smoothly and the audits are going smoothly, I try to stay out of their hair. That's a fair statement. So as a CFO coming from the background you have, typically what things do you get involved in in your day job at Tolero? So I'm usually brought into a company to help grow the company. And the approach I typically take is looking for whatever is limiting growth and then figuring out how to remove that. So there's a, I operate from a framework of, of the theory of constraints. So you may have a unique limiter on your growth that may be as simple as you don't have a large enough sales force. You've got a great product. You've got great demand. Total addressable market is huge. You just don't have a sales force. So what's limiting growth for the company is that you need to add that sales force could also be as complicated as you don't have a product market fit. (laughs) That's a bigger problem to fix. And so in general, the role of the CFO is to provide transparency to the business, empower the business to make the right decisions. And a key part of that is understanding what's stopping the company from achieving its objectives. So if you're at a large established company that's not growth oriented, but they are profitability oriented, then your first objective should be to try to find out why aren't we profitable enough? Is there not sufficient gross profit in the primary product stack? Are we spending too much on overhead? Like, What's the limitation of profitability? If you're in a company that's trying to grow, the key objective is to find out what's the limitation on that growth. And so that's generally the mindset of the companies that I'm at. And a, a big part, I think, of the value of that approach is you are oriented to figure out, as a rule, how to grow efficiently rather than doing what a lot of companies over the last decade have done, which is just throw money at the problem, whether it's efficient or not. Which one of those is the right way to go about it, though? So I can see I, pros and cons of both. 
Yeah, you know the the concept of blitz scaling over the last decade has had, I think, a lot of traction. And there are times and situations where blitz scaling makes a lot of sense. If you don't have a good product moat and you have a tremendous total addressable market, right? So Netflix is where kind of the concept originally came from. And if you look at what Netflix had, they had a fantastic idea, but they didn't really have any kind of barrier to entry. They had a great idea that was well timed because broadband had been widely distributed. They knew that the second that they moved, competitors were going to follow up. And so in that case, going out and raising as much money as you can to grab as much market share as you can, whatever the cost for this long-term monetization of users makes a tremendous amount of sense. That's a great situation for blitz scaling. I do think that a lot of times people have taken the Netflix approach and applied it in situations where it's not as relevant. You may not have as big a total addressable market. The users may not be long-term monetizable. And in those cases, a lot of times, you know, you might see we work, right? You might see situations where companies start to scale up really quickly. The public markets take a look at it and decide that that's not a sustainable strategy and that the value of the market share captured by virtue of blitz scaling didn't warrant the investment that went into it, right? And so I think that those are two kind of examples, one where it works and one where it doesn't. Yeah. I think I take out of that, there are two big numbers that you need to know as the CFO. Number one is, what is the size of your total addressable market? How many customers can you potentially have? And I'd say the second number then is, what is the lifetime value of a customer? I think that's exactly right. In general, I only look at three numbers when I build my first business model for any company. Lifetime value, customer acquisition cost, total addressable market. Yeah. And so what blitz scaling effectively is, is a decision to only look at those two numbers because they're the two that are the most relevant and to disregard customer acquisition cost. And sometimes that's the right decision. I would argue for a lot of businesses, it's worth it to understand customer acquisition cost because if you're not in a situation like that, if, if you do have, for example, a product where there's a long-term moat, then you don't necessarily need to race. You can grow very efficiently without diluting your shareholders as much and not needing to raise as much capital. And that may be better for shareholders in the long run. And I think those are the three core numbers for any business model. Yeah. That's interesting. Those, those three numbers are, are numbers that marketers would talk about all the time and very rarely CFOs would talk about. I think that's a key advantage to my background. And I think it's one of the challenges right now in the marketing and finance intersection is they don't usually speak the same language. And so a lead marketing officer may or may not be as familiar with customer acquisition cost. If they are, then knowing how to show that lifetime value over customer acquisition costs as a return on investment and present it to the finance side of the house can streamline a lot of those conversations. If they're not, then you can end up with a, a conversation where marketing goes, this is a great, awesome idea. Look at all the cool colors. And the finance team is saying, you can't give me any kind of a business case. And if they can't partner together to understand whether there's really value in that investment or not, then one of two things will tend to happen. Either the finance department will choke things up too much and good products and good projects may not get funded, good initiatives may not get funded, or the finance team may not establish enough of a requirement for accountability around those initiatives. And marketing may waste all their money on low ROI initiatives that don't pay off. And so being able to have that conversation with common language between the departments, I think, is key to a successful company. Yeah. 
we're not just talking about acquisition cost and lifetime value. We go on then to think about what's the profitability of this customer. That's right. Which, what are payback periods? Yeah. Yeah. And the good operator rule, which in most companies seems to say that 80% of your profit comes from 20% of your customers. I think that's true too. And, you know, in that role, finance can at least help with conversations around, you know, ideal customer profile and be engaged in the conversation. That's probably as you start to move further down into the specific tactics, that's the point at which I'd say it becomes more about trying to enable your marketing team to have the visibility so the marketing team can run. But yeah, I think that any of the metrics that a lot of times the finance team is best prepared to help share and disseminate that can be leveraged by other departments to help the company grow, part of being a good teammate is helping to make those available. Yeah. And the interesting thing is probably most of those metrics aren't available in the profit and loss account or the balance sheet. They don't show up in your income statement. They don't show up in the balance sheet. And so the second big thing I would say is different about the approach that I typically try to take is having a really good controller who's on point to manage those things. Obviously, I look at them. I pay a tremendous amount of attention to traditional financials. Those are very key. But having someone who knows enough to make sure that the reporting of that is true and accurate means that you can spend some time developing all of the insights, analytics, dashboards, everything that the company needs to know how to improve what's in the balance sheet and what's in the P&L. I'm bringing to mind a a slide that I use when I'm in the classroom that it's a picture of a a very up-to-date motor car. We're sitting in the driver's seat looking out of the front window and we've got the traditional dials. Then we've got all sorts of clever things that are being displayed on the windshield, telling us what the weather's like ahead, warning us of something that's about to come out from the the hedgerow next to the road and step in front of us, showing the sat-nav, showing us where we might have taken a wrong turning on the route to the destination. And then there's the the rear view mirror. And certainly my, my first point when I put that slide up is say, hey, finance people, if all you're doing is running this business from the income statement and the balance sheet, well, that's the same as driving this car, just looking through the rearview mirror. Fine, exactly great, right. you know where you've been, but you don't know what's up front. I think that's exactly right. Jeremy, you've specialized in growing companies. And you've what, what sort of growth have you taken Kasasa, Taru, and so on through? What, what sort of growth numbers are we talking about? So uh, Kasasa was an interesting one because we had a white label product that called reward checking that there wasn't really a strong moat around reward checking. The core concept behind it was you can reward consumers for behaviors that make or save a community bank or credit union money. Swipe your debit card 10 times, the banks generate interchange revenue. They generate fees from the merchants off of that. Sign up for an electronic statement, the banks save money, right? And they get a stickier customer. And as a result of that, you can turn around and you can pay a higher interest rate to the consumer because those fees can help offset it. And so that was kind of the key concept behind reward checking. Not a particularly complicated technology to replicate the decision-making process around that. And so Kasasa pivoted to really focus on building out marketing capabilities and a co-branded product suite that ended up being distributed through about 800 community banks and credit unions, almost like You might have a local jeweler with Rolexes on the shelves. The core idea behind Kasasa was to be the Rolex, right? To have the suite of products that could be distributed. 
And so when we, the white label business was there, when I came to the company, that co-branded product was not. And we grew that effectively from nothing while when I started to not quite nine digits, but pretty significant numbers. That's a big, big growth percentage. Of of what sort of period was that? Uh, That was 2009 to 2018. Yeah. So So that was Casasa. Then at, at Homeward was a startup as well for the first year of getting Homeward off the ground. And Homeward is at this point, I think on revenue deep into the nine figures, not to 10 though. So, and that's from 2018 to 2022. And then Talru, we've been doubling revenue for the last two years each year. Which is pretty impressive. So thinking then about the, the organization, you've got a few people to start off with. You're expanding at these phenomenal growth rates. How do you find keeping pace with that, keeping enough of the <laughs> right people around to, to sustain that growth? It's, to me, as soon as you double the size of your business, you seem to triple the size of the number of people you've got, which confuses all the communication. Not everybody's looking at the same objectives. And it can be a difficult situation. I think you've hit on two things there. The second I'll address first the N minus one problem, right? So every time you add a communication channel, if you have two people who are communicating, it's two minus one. There's one communication channel, right? If you have three, there's two communication channels. And so challenge, I think, and then it's squared, right? So you have essentially four and it keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger as those different channels get established. And so one thing that's key, I think, in any business model is making sure that you're paying attention to organizational complexity. One of the benefits of taking the time to really try to simplify an organizational structure and make sure that those organizations line up in a way that is logical, And people instinctively know, okay, this area of responsibility probably sits with this department. This area of responsibility probably sits with this person. If people understand that because you've structured things in a logical and an intuitive way, that's a much easier organization to manage than if you have weird pockets of responsibility. And I think that's one of the challenges that can happen with rapid organic growth is you're balancing that tension of what's a logical structure against the tension of how do we grow efficiently when I have available capacity in this department or available capacity in this person, and I don't want to add a lot of additional headcount if I can partition this job up a little bit. And so I think that's one of the things that's really a challenge a lot of times is is finding that right balance. And that's probably more art, I think, than science. It's you don't hire a new person because it's a logical format if they're going to do two hours of work. You also don't keep having a fragmented single person responsible for eight completely different roles at five hours a role because they're ultimately going to fail at that. And so that's, I think, a tricky thing. But it's an important one to balance because that addresses the first piece of your question, right? If you're going to establish a valuable business, you can't keep tripling headcount every time you double revenue, <laughs> right? If you're a services-oriented business at any rate. Maybe if you're a primarily a product business where most of your cogs doesn't sit in labor, you might be able to do that. But in tech, which is where I sit, most of the time, your biggest source of cogs, your biggest source of expense, OPEX, is people. Yes. And so you can't keep tripling that expense structure when you're doubling your revenue structure. 
So unless you've got a very big margin, <laughs> right? And so I think that's where a lot of the art sits in. How do you do it scientifically? I think you look at the roles that you have and you spend some time thinking about things that most CFOs don't, which is what are the communication channels within the organization? So how do these people interact? And a lot of that starts with an understanding of the customer journey. So if you can start from the perspective of how does the customer interact with our sales reps? And there should be a whole stack of numbers that go along with that. What are our close rates through the sales funnel, right? That's where you start asking the questions of lifetime value, customer acquisition cost. You know, you keep asking those two questions all the way through the whole stack. So most places you're going to have some form of marketing expense, whether they're purely digitally acquired or whether they're acquired through Salesforce, you're going to have some form of expense and some form of communication or reporting that needs to get managed through that. Then you're going to have some kind of onboarding activity or transaction-related activity. You're either shipping a product or you're installing software, right? There's some form of activity that's related to bringing the customer on. Then you'll frequently have some form of customer uh, support or management through that relationship. And in some businesses, you may have some form of cross-sale or you know, reattachment or renewal. And so if you can kind of think of each of those stacks of activity, then it can help you do a better job, one, making sure that you've got an understanding of what the roles need to look like for each of those functions. Two, how do your ratios need to look between those functions, right? If you've got too few sales reps and too much back office support, you're going to have a lot of extra OPEX and not a lot of growth. If you got too many sales reps and not enough people handling installation and setup, you're going to have a really big backlog and eventually you're going to start losing the customers that you closed before they ever go live. If you don't have good account management and renewal activity, you don't have the right staffing and the right team for that, you're going to see high churn. And so really understanding the customer journey, I think, is key to making sure, one, that the organization grows efficiently, two, that the organization grows rapidly, and three, that the organization grows well and healthily. And so I think all of those questions should start from the customer perspective. I guess we can look back to something we talked about right at the beginning, Jeremy. You talked about the theory of constraints. Now, I'm guessing that nine times out of 10, if you're looking through that customer journey, you're going to find the constraint. Absolutely. I think that's exactly right, Kevin. The key to understanding what's required to bring on customers, retain them, and grow them. It's really just as logical as looking at a factory floor and knowing that you've got, if you've got 10 machines that have to touch a widget and nine of them can crank out 100 widgets an hour and one can crank out 50, adding a second machine that can crank out 50 doubles throughput for the whole factory. And that starts from the life of the widget, right? In today's world, that same value creation chain has to start from the life of the customer. Yeah. In the factory situation, it's it's easy because you can see it. You can see this great pile of widgets sitting to go through that machine that can only churn out 50. Yep. You can see your bottleneck. Yeah. Yeah. In the process, it's rather more difficult. Finding out where those those bottlenecks are, you've got to really have your 
ear to the ground. Yeah. You have to be able to go have a conversation. And again, this ties back to relationships as well. You have to be able to go have a conversation with marketing and say, hey, it seems like we're not getting very many leads or we're getting a lot of leads that aren't converting. What can I do to help you get better visibility to what's going on and come at it from the perspective of being a teammate and support? Because then they'll be a lot more honest with you about what their limit is, right? You have to be able to have the conversation with sales. You know, hey, how many account executives can a manager handle? Do we need to add more management? Are we running into a limitation on that? Or do we have excess capacity with managers and not have enough account executives today? Like, where should we put the dollars to enable you to achieve the goals that you're tracking to? And a lot of that really starts from the perspective of finance as a teammate not finance as a keeper of wrongs, right? Like the accountability is important, but there's a, a lot of value that gets created when people are working together. If you can celebrate the wins and also learn from the mistakes, if the finance function is, a, is the fear factory, right? If the finance function is the center of fear in the organization, it can be really difficult to get people to be transparent. And it can be really difficult to get people to share the information. But if, if the CEO has, has you know, I've, I've been fortunate, most of the places I've worked and, and certainly at Talru, our CEO has done a tremendous job of bringing on people who are all pulling in the same you know, direction on the boat. When that's the case, then as long as the finance function is coming in and saying, how can I help us better understand when one roar, when one oar is a little bit off kilter, right? How can we get in better synchronization? That makes a big difference in an organization. And I think if we're looking at a finance business partner role, I think that observation that you've just made of it's it's not taking the results to the rest of the business and making them be accountable. It's while that has its place, it is that question: How can I help you? Right, and, and it's so powerful. Just yeah. asking that question, and, understanding and, what's keeping the other person awake at night. Yeah. And understanding that question makes it easier to have the accountability discussions too, right? Mm -hmm. If everybody knows that that the goal is to help the company achieve its objectives and to help everybody perform well, you know, I won't say that it always solves all the problems. Certainly there are sometimes people who just no matter what you do, they don't want the transparency, they don't want the visibility. That can happen. And that can be tough because it's not always the it's almost always the CFO's job to help point that out, <laughs> yeah. but it's not always the CFO's job to do much about it. And so that can certainly be a challenge, but it's a challenge that's a lot easier if the whole team knows that what you're trying to do is help everybody get the boat where it's going. Jeremy, you're by no means a traditional CFO. You didn't qualify as an accountant. You've come through with a great MBA from the home of the Fighting Irish, Notre Dame. And you're doing a great job growing companies. What would you be saying to many of our members who've come through a much more traditional route than you and are probably more wedded to the, the financial and the accounting numbers than you are? What would you say to them about to help them get out of being that traditional CFO? I would say that the benefit that I had is that the, the, I was moving into a role 
of finance, which is somewhat clearly defined. And I was moving from other roles, which are somewhat clearly defined, marketing and operations. And so I knew what I needed to learn and I knew what skills I didn't have. And I think it's important for traditional CFOs to do the same thing. If you want to develop a holistic understanding of the business, then you need to do an honest inventory and say, okay, this is the skill set I have. These are the things I don't know how to do today. And how do I go pick those up? And so it might be that you take a couple of marketing courses. It might be that you take CMOs either at your organization or friends that you happen to know out to lunch and have conversations with them. It might be that you spend more time going to you know, seminars on from COOs in the industry that you're operating in. I think the key thing though is, is do an inventory of what you're good at, decide what you want to be good at, and then you know, fill in the gap by learning. Great advice. Great advice. And from your angle, what would you say the CFO's role is in strategy? So I am heavily oriented towards strategy, and I'm typically brought on by CEOs who value that and want that. I think that the CFO, at a minimum, should be a key partner in helping understand not just what's happened in the business, but what is happening in the business today and what is likely to happen in the business on a going forward basis, not just based on what historical growth rates have been, but what on all the inputs that are driving that are, right? If you're going to build a pro forma, don't just take well, we grew at 10% last year. We're going to grow at 10% next year. You need to understand why you grew at 10% last year. And you need to be able to build a model that you can partner with your CEO to at least help them understand what those inputs are. And I don't know, I don't think I've ever met a CEO who didn't want that level of strategic insight from their CFO. I would say then the next big question is more variable. You know, I am much less involved in Talru's product development than I was at Kasasa because I'm a banking expert and I'm not a recruitment marketing expert. And our CEO's got a really strong product background. And so I, you know, he and I'll have conversations about product, but I was very, very much more involved in product conversations at Kasasa. I am heavily involved in sales conversations at Talru because I've got some experience and some background in that. And so I think a lot of it is as a strategic partner to the CEO, part of the role of the CFO is always being a good strategic thought partner and saying, here's what I see happening. Here's what I think will happen if we do that. Let's bounce some ideas around. I can model this out. I can give us a good amount of understanding as to what I think these inputs are going to need to be and what this outcome is likely to be. And then I think the other key piece is really being able to partner with and help be in more places at once. And I think that varies depending on your expertise relative to the rest of the team's expertise. And then I would say the third big key is helping to get alignment around strategy is going to be really common as well. So, you know, just really being able to pull the entire executive team together with a common set of assumptions and understanding around constraints to growth or around constraints to profitability, right? So being able to to do that, I think, becomes really key. And I guess in the way that you've been looking at what current constraints are and putting some emphasis on removing those, 
then part of that strategic view is saying, well, we grew at 10% last year. If we're going to grow at 10% again this year, here's the next constraint we're going to hit. Right. And then I, I'd guess that the CFO's job as well as recognizing that that's the next one we're going to hit. Well, let's make sure that getting rid of that constraint is funded properly in the budget for this period. That's right. That's mm. right. Yeah. Fantastic stuff, Jeremy. Good deal. Jeremy, Thanks for having me. There's just so much we've covered today. That has been really, really interesting. Jeremy, thank you very much for being this week's guest on the Growth Thank you. Show. Thank you. Terrific conversation, questions, insight. Really appreciated it.